Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers would be happy to give you one, so you just raise your hand and uh, they'll get one to you. You're welcome to keep that Bible if you don't have one. Uh, we, a couple weeks ago, began this new sermon series in 1 Corinthians, as Benjamin mentioned earlier. We're, we're calling it Rebuilding a Healthy Church. And Tom talked about that a little bit. We're calling it Rebuilding a Healthy Church because the church in Corinth had already been established. Uh, Paul had, had planted that church, and now there was, there was problems that was uh, causing uh, uh, the, the church to not be so healthy. Last week in verses 10 to 17 of, of chapter 1, we saw that one of the reasons that there's, there's not health in the church, the church is in need of some rebuilding, is because there's, there's a lot of division and disunity in the church. Right, right. So never say that the Bible isn't relevant for today, right? Because you guys don't know anything about division and disunity, <laughs> Right? There have been factions arising within the church, and it appears that it was caused by the Corinthians aligning themselves with different leaders, teachers within the church. And in doing this, what they were doing was really just adopting the values of the culture around them. See, at the time, the, the greatest celebrities in Greek culture were called sophists. It means just those who are wise. Uh, these were teachers who were highly trained in, in, in rhetoric, philosophy, would travel around giving eloquent speeches, uh, gathering followers. Some of the most influential people in society, you might say they were like very popular podcast hosts or something like that, the Joe Rogans of their day. And one of the reasons they were so influential because because of their commitment to an obsession with, with wisdom. And this is not the, the good kind of wisdom, the good kind of wisdom like we read about in the book of Proverbs, right? The wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, thinking and living according to the way that God has designed the world to work. Rather, this wisdom here is, is a negative category. It's, it's wisdom, so-called wisdom, that doesn't start with God. Rather, it, it starts with what the world thinks is right. It's a system of thinking and living according to the, the world's values and assumptions and expectations. And that's why Paul later will refer to it just as the wisdom of this age. But in Greek culture, to be a follower of one of these philosophers, one of these sophists was a status symbol. It was a, a symbol that you too were among the respectable and the cultured and the powerful and the wise. And so what's happening in the, in the Corinthian church is that these divisions and factions have developed along much the same lines that they would have developed in wider Greek society. The, the Corinthian Christians weren't necessarily seeking after these teachers, but they were aligning themselves with church leaders that they considered to be the most sophisticated, the most respectable. On the outside, this might not appear to be a big deal. After all, what's the problem with, with trying to follow the most gifted and influential teachers? But what they had done, uh, perhaps unwittingly, uh, but perhaps very knowingly, was import the, the worldly wisdom of their culture into their Christianity. 
They were expecting the church to operate basically the same way that society operates. A spiritually and morally superior version of it, of course, but basically acting along the same lines, using the same assumptions, the same methods, the same values. Now, the problem with this, Paul says, is this is, this is actually entirely contrary to the way that the gospel says things operate. This is very different from the way that God works. And actually, Paul makes a, makes a point of that in 1 Corinthians 1, 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he adds this, this interesting caveat. He said, he sent me to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, literally not in words of wisdom. That might seem sort of odd. Why wouldn't you want to use clever, persuasive, wise speech, Paul? He says, because if I did, the cross of Christ would be made void or made of no effect or be emptied of its power. See, the, the Corinthians were assuming that God worked according to their expectations rather than the way that He had revealed Himself in the gospel. And this was both stirring up divisions in the church as they aligned with various teachers, and it was in danger of distorting the message of the church. And while these specifics might be a bit different, this is just as much a danger for us. There's always a, a temptation and a tendency for us to, to import our own cultural expectations and assumptions and values into our Christianity. Like the Corinthians, we then uh, run the risk of both causing division in the church and distorting the message of the church. So, like the Corinthians, we too need to be corrected by God's Word. We need the, the Word of God to open our eyes, to show us where we're blind, and to show us where we need to realign our values, our assumptions, our expectations, not according to the way that the culture thinks, but according to the way that God has revealed Himself. And so, what we find is Paul addresses this issue with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to chapter 2, verse 5, is Rather than operating according to the, the world's expectations, God's gospel humbles our pride and magnifies His power because it's an unimpressive message that saves unimpressive people through unimpressive methods. The gospel humbles our pride and magnifies God's power because it's an unimpressive message that saves unimpressive people through unimpressive methods. So everyone is going to be equally offended today. So let's come now to God's Word. First, the gospel is an unimpressive message. We see this in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. We'll start in verse 18. Paul begins, and, he, and he's really explaining what he has meant when he says in verse 17 that he's preaching the gospel without cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ would not be made void. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. These verses will, will focus on the the content of the message that Paul preached. And this is what he calls in verse 18 simply the word 
of the cross. It's just another way of saying the gospel. At its most basic, Paul will say later in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins. So it's, a, it's appropriate for Paul to call the gospel the word of the cross or the message of the cross because at its very heart, the gospel is about the death of Christ. As a side note, this is a good reminder that if I were to ask you what the gospel is and your answer doesn't focus on Christ dying in the place of sinners, you have a broken gospel. It's not the gospel that Paul preached. But it's also worth noting here that this is the only place in Scripture where Paul calls the gospel the word of the cross. I think the reason for that is because because it's specifically this aspect of the gospel, the suffering and death of Jesus that made the message so unpalatable, so unbelievable, so foolish to the world. So Paul makes a point of calling the gospel the the word of the cross here to to highlight this, that the, the message of the gospel is unimpressive in the eyes of the world. If you were going to start a movement that was calculated to gain adherence and change the world, you probably wouldn't start with a message that was going to be foolish to those you were speaking to. Right? You'd, you'd start with something calculated to be compelling and convincing to your audience. But to the world at large, the message of the gospel wasn't that at all. It was, it was poor marketing foolishness. You might well say to Paul, Paul, you're never going to build a customer base with a message like that. But then again, Paul says it was never God's plan to do things according to the way that the world expected, according to the way that the world would evaluate as wise. And to support this point, Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah, this verse that we read earlier in the service. In verse 29, he's or I'm sorry, verse 19, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. It says, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So contrary to what the Corinthians may have expected, God does not only not act according to worldly assumptions, he actually says he acts entirely contrary to worldly assumptions on purpose. So, to destroy them or set them aside, right? He had had always promised and purposed to work that way. And so then Paul says, well, look what's happened now. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These categories of people that you would expect to be the, the influencers in society, where are they? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. So through the gospel, God is showing that what the world calls wisdom is actually nothing but foolishness. And those the world regards as wise are nothing but fools. How so? Verse 21 For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, 
God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world by showing that this so-called wisdom could never actually lead anybody to know God. In fact, Paul will say in the book of Romans that this so-called wisdom actually leads them further away from God and that people claiming to be wise became fools and exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, here in this context, he mentions two groups that largely rejected the gospel because it didn't fit with their expectations, two groups that Paul had to deal with as he preached the gospel in Corinth. Rather than embracing God's foolish gospel, they stuck with their worldly wisdom. Look at verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the Jews wanted demonstrable proof in powerful signs that Jesus was the Messiah. But this isn't what they saw. Jesus didn't come in glory and power like they expected the Messiah to. He hung on a cross in shame and weakness under the curse of God. This wasn't a sign from God. It was a stumbling block. It was absolutely scandalous. No, this can't be the way to know God. The Greeks, on the other hand, wanted compelling philosophical wisdom. But this isn't what the gospel offered to them. To them, the message of a God who would reveal Himself and be crucified in weakness was the very height of foolishness. An all-wise God, they thought, would, would never reveal Himself in this way, in such weakness. The gospel couldn't possibly be the wisdom of God. It was absolutely absurd. Surely no one could come to know God this way. But by God's design, the world, through its so-called wisdom, did not come to know God. Neither the Jews nor the Greeks nor anyone else would find their way to God through their own ingenuity. And this is not limited to Paul's context. This is whatever form it takes, be it first century Greek philosophy or 13th century mysticism or 18th century rationalism or 21st century expressive individualism and self-actualization, the wisdom of the world does not lead people to know God. Rather, God purposed to save people in a different way, through the message of Christ crucified. And this reality shows us how God uses the, the message of the gospel to humble our pride. See, if people came to know God through the wisdom that they devised, the wisdom of the world, it would simply exalt human ability. After all, then we would have figured it out, right? We know how to get to God. There's lots of ways to God. We'll figure it out for ourselves. We would have some reason to take pride in the way that we had worked ourselves into God's favor. We had cut through the, the maze and, and figured out how to get to God. We could at least split a little bit of the credit 
for our salvation with God. But the message of the cross is that we are not saved by anything that we do, but entirely by what God has done for us in the death of His Son. This demolishes our, our natural arrogance and humbles our pride because it displays our radical inability and our need for God's grace. It humbles our pride. And the message of the gospel also then magnifies God's power. Despite appearances, Jesus crucified in weakness, the gospel itself is the very power of God to save sinners. We read in verse 18, to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. And again in verse 24, to those who are called Christ, and specifically in this context, Christ crucified, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Paul ends this section by summarizing and saying that that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is an intentionally ironic statement. You're like, oh, God's not foolish. God's not weak. No, that's the point. Paul is saying what the world regards as foolish and weak, what God has done in the gospel is actually infinitely stronger and wiser than anything that they could do. What the world's wisdom fails to do, bringing people to know God, is accomplished by this so-called foolishness and weakness of a God displayed in a crucified Savior. I want to draw your attention to something here. In verse 18, Paul says that, that there are two types of people in the world. There are those who are perishing, and there are those who are being saved. And if you, if you trust in Jesus, who died for your sins and rose again for all your salvation, then you are among those who are being saved. You recognize that the word of the cross is the power of God. And so you love and you long to hear this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't get old to you. In fact, your heart is restless until you hear again of the Savior who died your death. To you, that truth isn't foolish or scandalous. It's sweet and satisfying like cold water to a thirsty soul. But if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, then you are among those who are perishing. You might wonder why we spend so much time singing and talking about the cross, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, celebrating it. You might think it, it's strange. You might think that you don't need to be saved at all. And if you did, it certainly wouldn't be through the shedding of blood. You think you might be able to get to God your own way. You don't need the Bible to tell you anything. You're content to rely on your own smorgasbord of spirituality to lead you to God. But what this passage teaches us is that God's plan was that people will never come to know Him through any way that they think or devise. Rather, they come to Him the way that He has designed, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift of pure grace. And you need only receive 
this gift. So then we learn later that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, that it would rest on the power of God. What is the power of God? Paul tells us in verse 18. It's the word of the cross. It's what God has done for you through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus to save you from your sin. And if you would believe this message and entrust yourself to Him, even now at this very moment, then as Paul says, God would be well pleased to save you. God humbles our pride and magnifies His power through the, the unimpressive message of the gospel, which unexpectedly and contrary to the world's assumptions is actually the means by which God saves people. The message of the gospel is unimpressive. Second, the, the gospel saves unimpressive people. Look at verses 26 to 31. If the message of the gospel was unimpressive, so too were the people it saved. If you were going to start a movement, who would you start with? Who would you try to win over? The most powerful, the most influential, the most intelligent, the most persuasive? Those who are most put together, we try to get the cool kids? I mean, that's exactly what worldly wisdom would suggest. But Paul reminds us that the Corinthians, reminds us and the Corinthians, that this is, this is not at all what the case was with them. The people of the gospel are unimpressive in the eyes of the world. Look at verse 26. Explaining now, well, Paul, what do you mean the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men? Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. The Corinthians were mainly from among the lower strata of society. These were not the wise, the mighty, the noble according to the world. And this was actually a cause for derision in early Christianity. There were critics and opponents of Christianity that would mock the Christians, mock the church, because it was full of slaves and poor people and women, and these were not those who were powerful and influential in society. These were not the people that you would use to start a movement in that culture. And on the surface, this would seem like a, a terrible way for the church to operate. But it was they and not others whom God had chosen, whom God had called to salvation through the gospel. And what was the result? The gospel spread like wildfire. Why? Because again, God was showing that things don't work according to our wisdom. His unimpressive message saves unimpressive people, not by chance, but by His choice. And both who the gospel saves and how the gospel saves serves to humble our pride and magnify His power as well. Right? The, the fact that the gospel saves unimpressive people humbles our pride. Look what he says in verses 27 and 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the, the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. It's not as if God tried to get the rich and the powerful and the influential, and they said, no thanks. And so he's like, all right, I guess I'll have to go for the weak and the foolish and the poor. No, God specifically chose to save those the world would not expect in order to remove any ground of human pride. And look at verse 29. Look at what he says. He did this. He, he chose the foolish. He chose the weak. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. No one can boast that they were saved because of who they are or what they've done. God doesn't choose and call people to salvation based on something desirable in them. So we can, we can take no pride in it. Don't miss that. If, if you're saved, it's because God chose you for salvation. And if, you, if God chose you for salvation, it's not because of anything impressive He saw in you that made Him do it. He chose you in love out of sheer grace, simply to be a trophy of His sovereign mercy. And that contradicts all our assumptions because we tend to pick things that we are impressed with, right? And, and if we're not careful, then we extrapolate that value system onto our Christianity, onto our way of, of thinking about how God works. So let me give you an example. Have you ever thought to yourself, if only so-and-so would become a Christian, just imagine the kind of revival that would break out, right? Insert whatever celebrity or, or pop culture figure or politician or influencer that you, that you would. If only they became a Christian, just imagine the people that would flock to Christ because of them, right? So just imagine. If Kanye West became a Christian, millions of people would just flock to Christianity because of his influence and wait. Do you, do you see the problem? There's a couple. You may remember that Kanye West actually did, by his, by his own admission, make a profession of faith. He says he's a Christian. But I don't know if you've looked around lately, it's not like we're in the third great awakening. Right? Kanye West is not this, this uh, ardent evangelist who, who people are, are flocking to Christ because of him. And that's not because he's not a Christian. I don't, I don't know if he is or isn't. He says he is. I, I hope that he sincerely is, that that profession is genuine. But I'd say it's reasonable to say that some of our assumptions about what would happen if the most influential people in our society became Christians may be mistaken. Another problem here would be that even if millions of people had begun identifying themselves as Christian because of someone like Kanye, would they be doing it because they heard the gospel and recognized it to be the power of God to salvation? Or would they be doing it because they saw their favorite celebrity doing it? A number of years ago, um, I don't know if any of you may remember this, um, 
Madonna began uh, dabbling in Kabbalah, sort of Jewish mysticism, and suddenly Kabbalah became super popular, and everybody was into Kabbalah. Why? Well, Madonna was into it. I don't think anybody actually cared about it. It was just a way of following somebody that they, that they liked. Right? This is not the way that God operates. It's a good reminder that we shouldn't expect God's gospel to, to work and focus on what we consider to be the most influential places in society. We, we shouldn't expect the, the, that the work of the gospel is going to take place primarily in the halls of power and politics and the arenas of, of culture shaping and global superstardom. God's never operated that way. In fact, He's almost always operated in quite the opposite way. Throughout Scripture, God routinely and intentionally works among His people from a place of apparent weakness so that His people don't trust in themselves, but in Him and His power, so there can be no mistake to whom the glory belongs. If the gospel saves unimpressive people, humbles our pride, it reminds us that God doesn't choose us because we're impressive, but actually because we're in large part unimpressive in the eyes of the world. It's not because of anything in us. It's calculated to tear down our arrogant boasting in ourselves. But notice that it's not just that the gospel excludes human boasting, not just that it humbles our pride before God, but, it, but also actually includes human boasting in God. The gospel saves unimpressive people, and so it magnifies God's power. Look at verses 30 and 31. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Don't miss that. It is simply and entirely by His doing that you are in Christ. God chose them. God called them. God united them to Christ. God counted them righteous. God cleansed them of their sin, redeemed them from their curse. And He did this not because of anything that He saw in them, not because of anything that He saw in you, but despite the fact that there was nothing at all desirable. So if anyone is saved, it's because of God and not because of them. It's entirely God's work, and so it's entirely by grace. And if it's entirely by grace, then not only do we not get any credit for it, but God gets all the credit for it. It's, there's going to be any boasting about anything that we do, Paul says in verse 30, it's going to be in the Lord, in what He's done. And that the gospel saves people who are unimpressive, humbles our pride and magnifies His power by showing that our salvation has nothing to do with, with us and everything to do with the sheer grace of God. We could easily say here what Paul says to the boastful Corinthians later, what do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Christians ought to be the most humble and thankful people 
of all because they know that everything that they have is a gift of grace. And sadly, Christians can often be arrogant grumblers. I know none of you know anything about that. I certainly don't know anything about that. We're all going to struggle with that at, at, at some level. So how do we fix it? The answer isn't just to try harder to be humble and thankful or to to load ourselves with guilt because we're not what we're supposed to be. And so if we feel worse about ourselves, then maybe we'll, we'll stir ourselves up to change. No, the answer is that we need to return again to the truth of the, the gospel. When we're confronted with the depth of our sin and the sufficiency of Christ's cross and the love of God freely given to it, given to us, it, it ought to have the the effect of increasingly melting our hearts into humble thanks. The boastful Corinthians needed that word, and so do we. So the gospel is an unimpressive message. It saves unimpressive people. And thirdly, the gospel saves through unimpressive methods. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Paul had reminded the Corinthians that God didn't save them because of how impressive they thought the gospel was by the world's standards, or how impressive they themselves were by the world's standards. Now he goes further to remind them that God didn't save them because they found Paul's preaching to be impressive by the world's standards. Remember, part of the attraction of these these sophists, these teachers in Greek culture, was not just their content, but their presentation. It was at least as important as what they were teaching, was how they were teaching it. It was that, that rhetorical flourish, as much as anything, that gained popularity and influence and adherence. But Paul here specifically reminds the Corinthians just how unimpressive he was. Look at verses, look at verse, start in verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. And then verses 3 and 4, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. It is everything that the, the Corinthians thought should characterize a teacher that was worth following with a worldview that was worth adopting. Everything that the Corinthians assumed that Paul should be, Paul wasn't. If he was running for office, you'd expect him to lose in a landslide. He wasn't going to be a, a first-team all-Corinthian teacher. Now, both his message and his methods were unimpressive, right? His message was unimpressive, as we saw earlier, and he repeats it here in, in verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the, the Word of the cross, But the methods that Paul used to present the gospel were also unimpressive. He says his preaching was not in superiority of speech or wisdom, not in persuasive words of wisdom. And it's not that Paul was a poor preacher or not that Paul didn't want to persuade people to trust Jesus, but but rather that Paul deliberately chose to preach uh, in, in a way that wouldn't be recognized as impressive to the world when he came to Corinth. So that if he had anyone who who came to him and anyone who began to follow Christ because of his preaching, it would be evident that they followed not because they saw a popular teacher, 
but because they saw the gospel to be the power of God to save. Right? Paul, Paul didn't use the methods that the Corinthians would have wanted. Right? He says in 2 Corinthians, again, that he refused to be a peddler of God's word. He renounced using manipulative strategies and was committed to setting forth the truth of the gospel plainly. Right? He focused exclusively on the content of the message because that is what matters, not the presentation. It's the content, Christ and Him crucified. Because of that, it would be evident that anyone who responded by believing the gospel was doing it not because of this impressive message skillfully presented by an impressive preacher, but because it was the power of God to save. So Paul determined to get out of the way so that the gospel could get to work. That's exactly what he says in verses 4 and 5. He says, my message, my preaching were not in persuasive words of, of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And here he's, he's circled back around to, to verse 17 in chapter 1. He preached the gospel, but not in, in cleverness of speech, not in words of eloquent wisdom, lest the, the cross of Christ be made void, no effect, powerless. Instead, he preached the gospel simply, focusing on that, that central message of Jesus Christ who died for the sins of sinners in their place and who rose again to offer new life and forgiveness because that message is where the power is found. The demonstration of or, or, or proof of that power, as Paul says, was that the Corinthians themselves actually came to believe it. The fact that any of the Corinthians or that anyone anywhere ever, for that matter, has believed the gospel is evidence that it is the power of God. It's not the clever invention of, of a man. It's the very power of God to save. And, and so the, the fact that the, the methods of presenting the gospel were unimpressive likewise serves to humble our pride and magnify God's power. And catch what he said in verse 5. He preached in an intentionally unimpressive way so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So that your faith would not rest on, on anything you see in me that would make you think this is worth following, but because what you hear is the voice of God inviting you to life. What's the power of God? Again, verse 18, the power of God is the word of the cross. For Paul to present an unimpressive message with unimpressive methods, to have it save unimpressive people was proof positive that this word of the cross was indeed the power of God to save sinners. And it was there and there alone that Paul wanted the Corinthians' faith to rest, not in him, not in themselves, not in what made sense to the world, not in what would make them popular with the culture, but in the simple message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that has some significant implications for the way that we think about the presentation of the gospel, both personally and uh, as a congregation. Uh, first, personally, I'd, I'd be willing to bet that many of you feel inadequate when it comes to sharing the gospel 
with others. It seems to be one of the most frequently cited reasons why people don't want to share the gospel with others. It's not because they don't think that it's important. They just feel inadequate. They feel ill-equipped. What this passage reminds us that is that your, your feeling of adequacy really has nothing to do with whether or not the message of the gospel is powerful or effective. In fact, the fact that you feel inadequate may actually be the best place to be because it so clearly demonstrates that it's not you but God who saves by the Spirit through His Word. So it's not to us but to God that glory belongs. You might say, but I don't know enough to share the gospel. But the power isn't in your knowledge. It's in the word of the cross. You might say, well, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good debater. I can't keep up. But the power isn't in your skill. It's in the word of the cross. You might say, I'm not confident enough to talk with with others about Christ, but the power isn't in your confidence. It's in the word of the cross. You might say, I'm not good at answering tough questions, but the power isn't in your ability to answer questions. It's in the word of the cross. You might say, well, I haven't memorized enough apologetics arguments, but the power isn't in your, in your apologetic arguments. The power is in the word of the cross. And that's not to say that these areas aren't important, and we wouldn't want to help you grow in those. Of course, we, we would, but it's a reminder that, it, that it's God's Word and not your work that saves people. This also shapes the way we think about presenting the gospel in the life of our church. So we don't intentionally do anything to manipulate your emotions. We don't distort the Word of God to make it more palatable or persuasive to people. The final analysis, it really doesn't matter what style our music is or how seemingly relevant our services are or how slick our programming is or even how skilled our preachers are. What matters is that we're preaching Christ and Him crucified. Everything else can change, can come and go, but the message of Christ crucified is that which builds and binds the church together. I will speak for myself, and I think I can speak for Tom and for Austin and for Jeremy as well. We really appreciate when we receive encouragement from you about our preaching. But I will tell you, I think all of us, rather than hearing, Pastor, that was a great sermon, I really enjoyed it, we would so much rather hear than that was a great sermon, we would rather hear that is a great Savior that is revealed in that Word. What matters to me, what matters to us is not that you think our content is great, but that you think Christ is glorious. See, the only way that men and women can be saved from perishing in their sin is the simple proclamation of Christ who died for sins and rose again. It's by that gospel, that gospel alone that God saves sinners, and it contradicts the world's wisdom and so serves to humble our pride and magnify His power, for salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. So we're going to come now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We will focus like Paul on that gospel of Christ and Him crucified. Hopefully you received a, a communion packet on your way in. If not, uh, there is an usher who will, who will give you one. 
I had two of them up here and they are gone. So if someone would be so kind as to get me one, thank you so much. This is a, a celebration for those, uh, Paul says, who, who recognize and know that the word of the cross is the power of God for salvation and whose faith rests on that word. So if that's you, we welcome you to celebrate with us this morning. If you're not trusting in the Lord, thank you, Darrell. If you're not trusting in the Lord alone for your salvation, we would ask that you please refrain from participating with us uh, this morning. Paul talked about how he decided to, to, to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it's remarkable. The, the Lord's Supper is this visible proclamation of the cross. It stands at the, the center of the church's life. When the church gathers, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a, it's a built-in gospel presentation. It's a built-in reminder of the cross of Christ. Remember, when Jesus told his disciples to do something in remembrance of him, it was specifically in regard to his death. Jesus apparently thought that his death was absolutely central. Could somebody get Jerry a communion packet before her arm falls off? How good can you catch, Jerry? The Lord's Supper humbles our pride and magnifies God's power as the, the emblems of Christ's death are set before us. It humbles our pride because taking the Lord's Supper is a declaration of utter dependency. You don't bring anything to the Lord's table. You didn't make the bread. You didn't get the juice. You didn't put it into these little packets. It was given to you. Everything is provided for you. All is accomplished. All you do is receive personally with gratitude. That magnifies God's power that, by reminding us that quite contrary to anything that we could think, that it was by death, the death of the Son of God, that, that our death is destroyed. It was the shedding of blood, the blood of the Son of God, that cleansed our sin. The power to save is nothing in us, nothing that we do, but entirely in what God has done through the death and resurrection of His Son, which is tangibly displayed before us in these signs. So as surely as you hold this bread and this cup in your hand, so surely Christ was crucified for you. As surely as you eat and drink these signs, so by faith, Christ's death counts for your death. Christ's life for your life. Later in 1 Corinthians, we read Paul saying that he received from the Lord what he also had delivered. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So before we partake together, let's take a moment to humble ourselves before God, recognizing again that it is the word of the cross that is the power of God to salvation, and that it's because of him 
and him alone that we are in Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Let us boast with thankfulness in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the grace that you have shown us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, by whose death we are saved from the wrath of God and reconciled to you. Oh God, as we partake, let us, let us partake with humble thankfulness and great love for you and and an acknowledgement of your power to save us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take the bread. Take and eat. The body of Christ was broken instead of yours. If you would take the cup. Take and drink. The blood of Christ was shed instead of yours. As often as we eat of this breath and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. You're dismissed.